Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebod, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Why is this important? Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They are the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how we can work together to design a better world. For this reason, I have invited leading creative professionals in a variety of fields to share their work and their thoughts on the city. And through these conversations, I hope to engage some of the greatest challenges and opportunities facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, architecture and the arts, embedded technologies, and so much more. Today, I am delighted to introduce my next guest, Annalisa Mayboom. Annalisa received a civil engineering degree from the University of Waterloo and holds a Master's of Architecture from the University of British Columbia, where she is now an Associate Professor at the School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture. She is the Director of the Transportation, Infrastructure and Public Space Lab, otherwise known as TIPS Lab, an interdisciplinary research group that examines the design of public transportation infrastructure and its critical and catalytic relationship to public space. Her research interests include the state of the art in robotic fabrication of wood, as well as the integrated design of future transportation networks. Annalisa has published numerous articles, and her most recent books include Driverless Urban Futures, a speculative atlas for autonomous vehicles, and Design Capital, the hidden value of design and infrastructure, which she co-authored with her colleague, Sherry McKay. In addition to her research and teaching, Annalisa is the principal of Air Studio, a multidisciplinary architecture and engineering design firm based in Vancouver, Canada. Annalisa, welcome to On Cities. I'm so happy to be speaking with you today. Thank you so much, Carrie. It's great to be here. So Annalisa, where did you grow up and how did your early childhood experiences shape your thoughts about cities? Um, I grew up mostly in Ottawa in Canada. And uh, I think what I have to say is that that my it probably the thing that shaped me my experiences most was working um with my dad on um car renovate car car repairs and house renovations um and so i knew that i liked to build things i had an uncle who was a contractor and i thought um that was pretty cool and so i i kind of developed a confidence in tech, my technical ability through all that and i didn't really know anything about architecture at the time um it was really that's a that was a foreign area to me. So civil engineering seemed to be the place to go, and I was also hopeful that when I did that, I would get a job when I came out of university and be employable. So, was it those early childhood experiences working with your, said your father, um, on these more kind of technical projects? What led you towards um, engineering? Because you know, before becoming an academic and an architect, you had a successful career as a structural engineer and a bridge designer. And as far as I know, there aren't very many female role models in this field. So was it those early childhood experiences that made you feel confident enough to pursue a career in engineering? I think so. I think, you you know, in terms of um, you need someone, you know, when you're younger that, you know, says, you know, yes, you're you're good at this. You can do this and and supports you. And I think, you know, everyone needs that while, you know, in their younger years and the, and through that, then you can then say, OK, I think I can take this on. And engineering is, is really, um, I think, intimidating uh, for women in that way, just because, you know, it's not really something that you, you know, it, it has a very um, kind of male um, a, 
I guess, expression in terms of how you see it in society. And so it, it, it's a bit intimidating to go to that field. Um, and I think that, the, you know, having someone say to you, or at least having the experience that I've done these things, I've built these things, I know how to do these things, and I have confidence, that lets you kind of enter into that arena, I guess. So you you explored engineering as a practitioner uh, for several years, but then you decided to make the leap from engineering to architecture. Uh, how did that happen? Well, as an, you know, as an engineer, I, I was, you know, designing, br- I first I started out in roads, and then I went into bridges. And we did, a, you know, a series of, of, of bridges. Um, and it seemed it became apparent to me that that maybe there was something missing, you know, I'd see these beautiful, you know, images on the on, you know, in the media, of these amazing bridges. And I, you know, I kind of see amazing public spaces, but what I was designing was very utilitarian, very functional. And it really seemed to be lacking. And I was wondering, like, how do I learn how to design like this? And that was where I, I I decided that I would go and learn how to design what I call properly. And so I went, I looked around and I thought the only place I could really learn that is architecture school, because it seemed to be the architects who were bringing this kind of extra, what I call extra to the infrastructure. And it always ended up being amazing when they did that. There was a bridge that I was um, involved in, and it was, it's the Humber Pedestrian Bridge in Toronto. And, you know, they had, you know, it was, you know, it had influence from the First Nations that were there. It was a beautiful public space. It really was something that was beyond just a utilitarian functional bridge. And I thought, this is amazing. So that was kind of what led me to go into into architecture after that. Well, I mean, you, you have such a unique profile in that way, you know, because you're able to combine engineering and architecture, which in my experience as a practicing architect, you know, oftentimes, you know, we have this adversarial role or there's this adversarial role in the dif- discipline between engineering and architecture. But I think if more of us could, in fact, respect what the other does and be more collaborative, I think that we would have more success in uh, the sculpting of our built environment. So I think you're a great role model for many. Um, well, I mean, maybe we could talk about this kind of third prong, which is that in addition to being you know, an architect and a practitioner, you're also an academic. You've decided to pursue a career in, academic, in academia, and you've written a number of um, what I would regard as really um, informative and uh, great books on the topic of infrastructure and design. So your book, Driverless Urban Futures, A Speculative Atlas for Autonomous Vehicles, um, in that book, you make the argument that design has the power to inhabit new futures. What do you mean by this? So I think when we design anything, what we're doing is we're creating a new future. So you know, when we design a house, we're creating a new future for somebody who's living in that. And if it's a different house, then we have a, in a way, it's a different future. So we're always creating new futures every time we design anything. Infrastructure is a bit more challenging because, you know, people have a hard time visualizing a new house, you know, never mind a new infrastructure, which is, you know, can be an entire roadscape or even an entire area. And so the idea of visualizing different versions of that future means that you design different uh, kind of different cityscapes or different aspects of the infrastructure and then you show it to people and you if you show them the different versions then they can say oh that's the one i want but they with without seeing that range of varieties then they don't know necessarily what they want because they can't imagine what these different futures are and and when i think talk about it in concrete terms i'm talking about you know one thing but whenever i'm looking at the autonomous vehicles it's really you know how do you know how do we put autonomy and the technology into our environment and that's and then we start to see what the implications are of how we might do that um and that's to give everyone an idea of where you might want to go um every design decision that you make is a value it's a, it's based on a value and so it's like if you value something then you then you design that way if you value something else you design that way um, and so on behind all of the different designs are really different values and i think that's the the critical thing is is bringing out you know the implications of the values on the built environment if that makes any sense Oh, absolutely. And I think we're going to get uh, more into that um, as as the conversation continues. So so maybe we can dwell a little bit more on this, because um, uh, in that in the book, you speak about or or you imagine urban futures uh, and these futures are speculative. 
Can you share with our listeners um, some of the kind of concrete potential design scenarios that you envision for the ways in which autonomous vehicles could be integrated into our society? I know you give a few examples of these in the book. Maybe you could elaborate on them for our audience. Yes, for sure. I think, you know, at the there's, well... At the simplest, we can think about everyone having their own autonomous vehicle, right? And that would be, you know, we all, instead of driving our regular cars, we have a car that drives itself. But And and when we think about that, that seems fairly straightforward. But then we realize, you know, oh, well, you know, the children could go somewhere by themselves. We don't necessarily need to go there. That We could send them in the car. You know, the car will go there and then, and then give you a message when it gets there. Um, and that's that's one aspect of it. And then there's things like, you know, we, would, we could actually send the dog to the vet in the car and, th- and things like that. So there's 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 those things to think about. When we think about a different version, we could have a car ride hailing, for example, that was just autonomous. So we could all be sharing one car, um, but but then we, the car would come when we called it, but it just wouldn't have a driver. And that's kind of fairly also similar to what we have. Um, but then we think about hmm, what happens if we have a subscription model. So and we have car companies that provide our kind of ride hailing. So this is more like, OK, I subscribe to like the BMW service and I get my car within five minutes or, you know, you subscribe to a less expensive service and I have to wait 10 minutes for the car to come. And so you can kind of think of it more as a cell phone kind of subscription service type of future. Um, and so, or we could think about it as we've got public transportation that then takes up autonomy. And that public transportation is, let's say it has last mile shuttles or shuttles that just do a neighborhood and we call the public transportation and it comes and takes us to the subway and the subway is fully autonomous. And then we get off at a shuttle downtown and that shuttle downtown, you know, is going on a fixed route and it's autonomous. And so the the whole public transportation system could be autonomous. And that could be another way that we could have a future city. Um, so those are the, those are some of the kinds of, of ways we can imagine how the future might be. So I guess the examples that you're talking about, you're talking uh, everything from the private to the public, right? You know, at one extreme, it's that, you know, everyone has a private autonomous vehicle. And then at, maybe at the other extreme, you're talking about how the investment in the future city is in the public realm, right? With uh, automated public transit. So what, I mean, you spoke earlier about our societal values. Um, I mean, can you elaborate a little bit more on where you see the greatest promises? Is it in the private investment or is it in the public investment? Like, where do you see the most fruitful, the most optimistic, uh, the most equitable future for um, this kind of integration of technology? It's it's definitely with the public transit, Gary, because that means everyone has um, affordable access to this autonomous technology and that it can be, work really efficiently. One of the problems is that if we decide that we're just going to go with the private and we um, we end up with a situation where maybe, you know, public transit doesn't have the money that they would have that they would have got before because people stop taking public transit and they just go for the kind of the the autonomous uh, car share services in which case you know public transit gets eroded and then you have a, a portion of the of the population that wouldn't necessarily be able to afford the the you know kind of the autonomous car share services and so they would they would be lacking then even more in public transit because all of the you know all of the ridership for the public transit would have disappeared and so we have to be, I think, you know, cognizant of the fact that 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 is a real that's a real possibility and that is a real problem. Um, whereas if we invest in public transit and we make the whole system autonomous, it's better for everyone because what they've done in the terms of studies is say if if we don't have mass transit anymore, then we double basically we have a, a hundred and ninety six percent increase in traffic on the roads with autonomy. Because cars are going to drive around empty. They're going to drive around with groceries in them. They're going to drive around with um, with dogs in them. They're going to drive everybody who can't and children and everybody who can't currently drive will be able to drive. Um, and so that's going to kind of increase congestion to uh, a level where our cities may be um, non-functional if we don't maintain our public transit. So that public transit is essential both for equity and for kind of social social reasons and then also for the, for like functionality of getting people places. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because in in where I am in Miami, oftentimes you hear 
people speaking about autonomous vehicles as being, you know, the end all be all solution for transportation, right? With little discussion about how it would need to be coupled with a solution that involves public transit. And so I think what you're pointing to is, you know, if, if we abandon the automization of public transit for the use of automated vehicles, we're going to dramatically increase the number of cars, which is going to go against what we actually, you know, want to do. And there might be large sectors of the population that can't, that won't have access to automated vehicles. So maybe in listening to you talk about this, do you think that there could be um, like a, a hybrid model initially? For instance, um, you spoke about uh, in the book, you speak about the problem of the last mile. Maybe you could describe what that is. Um, actually, maybe I'll let you do do that first and, and follow up with uh, the possibility of a hybrid model for uh, the future of automation in cities. So what is the last mile problem? The last mile problem is when you take public transit, but it's it's getting from the public transit station to your home um, or getting from the public transit station to the actual pl- workplace or wherever it is that you want to go. And and that often is what discourages people from taking public transit because that is a slower process. You know, there may not be good service in the area that you're that you're going to. Um, and it and so that's where where um, autonomous vehicles can really make a huge difference because it can be on demand, um, so that you you call it when you need it and it takes you more likely to be exactly where you want it to go depending on how the system is set up. But we could set the system up so that it it does take you directly to where you want to go. But that's a kind of a public system or um, you know kind of a, a shared system where you know, people get dropped off at various points along the route. Um, but the fact that it's on demand would be very helpful, especially, you know, at nighttime or at times that it's it, it's not riding so frequently. Yeah, definitely. In cities like Miami, we have this pro- with this challenge because we have, you know, really one main artery for public transit, but it doesn't necessarily take you to your home. So that last mile is critical. So I can imagine when I hear you talking that there could be a series of scenarios, for instance, like a public transit system that is maybe not automated at first, but then a fleet of vehicles that are you know, part of the public transit system that can take you on that last half mile or the last mile to solve the problem that you just mentioned, um, eventually moving towards a system that is entirely automated. Um, so I, I think, I think you're pointing to, to again, where are our values? Who do we want? who do we want to have these new technologies benefit? And I think you're making the argument that we want to be able to benefit the majority um, of the the population, right? Not to say that the individual automated uh, vehicle is a bad thing, but if it's the only solution, then it's going to be far less powerful than it could be. So I, I think that makes a great deal of sense. Yeah, that's uh, exactly right. I mean, beyond actually the individual automated vehicle, you've also written articles about, for example, electrical vehicle station planning. Because, you know, when we think about automation, it's not just the car and the car itself, right? It's also the infrastructure associated with automation and how those might emerge or or with that might emerge new building types and new urban patterns. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, for sure. The the electric vehicle charging infrastructure is really interesting because it's a, a kind of a new a new mode of of fueling, right? That we that we're going to have or that we have currently, and it's not the same type of thing as a gas station because it's it's a very agile thing. It's very it's relatively small relative to a gas station, and so it becomes more kind of spread out within within the city itself. But it also has a different characteristic in that you wait at the station and that waiting at the station then means that you have a certain amount of time that to, you know 20 minutes or so if you're at a fast a fast charger and you need to car- charge your car fully that you you want to do something in that time so it when you're looking at it kind of urbanistically what you want to do is couple that with something that you can do for 20 minutes um, and so put it nearby um, a coffee shop or put it nearby a library or even a community center or somewhere you can do exercise you know so that you can use those 20 minutes in a in a a kind of productive way. Um, and so that's a kind of a different typology. It also doesn't have a giant canopy. And so then how do you make these things visible within the urban realm is another is another issue. And they tend to not be well publicized 
um, in terms of uh, how they're placed, at least the ones that are done by um, municipal governments or government agencies, um, which is a shame because that would give people more confidence that those stations were there. Um, private entities like Tesla do a better job of 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 that in in their in their um, in their signage, and I think we could we could learn something more from that. Um, but definitely, it's a different kind of animal than than a gas station, and so it gives us a different opportunity for for making something of those stations. Yeah. Um, and actually, maybe it, it gives us uh, what I hear in your answer, the possibility of more urban models uh, rather than, let's say, the suburban gas station or um, maybe the large scale kind of uh, parking uh, parking lots where where you start to see some of this, you know, these vehicles uh, stations along the highways, for instance. But I think you're talking about how they can be made smaller and kind of dispersed uh, all throughout the city. And therefore they can kind of activate the urban realm in ways that um, we have yet to anticipate, right? Yeah, um, or you could design the station to kind of have a, a children's playground, or you could design it to have other amenities beside it, right? That are, are something other than fueling. And I think it's just looking at it more holistically from an urban perspective, really. What can you what can you couple with it? How can it do more? How can there be a synergy between what has to happen with the transportation fueling and then what has to happen in your in your everyday life? And 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 I think that you just need more kind of uh, I guess innovative thinking about how how these things get deployed and and what gets deployed with them. Yeah, I think they they make for a very interesting study on a new hybrid building type for sure. Um, you also talk about um, design insofar as the design of our streets, right? So again, it's not just about the automated vehicle. It's not only going to be about public transit, but what about the design of our streets? And you argue that with the integration of automated vehicles, we could see a reverse in the hierarchy of the street um, between the pedestrian and the car. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, that's really interesting. So what I, and I, the way I usually think about it is, you know, there's an area in Vancouver where everyone's walking in the morning to get their coffee. And, and, you know, when you think about that, if you are walking on a street and you want to get to the other side, because there's your coffee and someone, you know, you realize that these cars are autonomous. So if all of our cars on our street are autonomous, that means they're programmed to stop. If you walk in front of them, they're not going to hit you given enough, given enough space. So, you know, that it's perfectly safe to walk across the street because all the cars will stop. And so when you have to think about that, then you're like, oh, my gosh, well, how are cars ever going to get through a street? Because everyone's just, you know, everyone needs their coffee. They're going to cross the street wherever it's the most convenient. And then all the cars are just going to stop and wait. And they'll wait until the, the you know, the street is clear of, of pedestrians because they're programmed to do that. That And that there, there, there you have an issue, an issue of immediately reversing the hierarchy of the street. And then what you need is a car courtesy zone. So it's like, please do not block the cars. You know, so so then then you're like, wow, this is interesting. What is what does this mean? Um, and also the cars, you know, they don't weave back and forth. So they go in a very straight line. They can drive millimeters from each other. So they really don't need as much space. Um, and so those those types of things um, start to become uh, interesting in how you design your city then. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I was uh, listening to a um, small like a kind of commercial for Woven City. I don't know if you've heard of this kind of new uh, project in Japan. And the solution that they're proposing there is to actually um, separate the transit, completely separate the pedestrians from the vehicles. You know, so I guess the automated vehicles can be running without any disruption. But, but I think your proposal to be able to integrate both um, seems to me to be maybe a richer model, perhaps. Um, certainly we would have to defer to the cars in ways that now the cars have to defer to the pedestrians. But I think the ability to um, make a richer street section seems to me to be uh, more promising, perhaps. But, um, well, I mean, I think we can continue to talk about this uh, for quite some time, but we're going to take a short break. Um, and when we return, we're going to continue the conversation with Annalisa, and we're going to turn to focus on her most recent book, Design Capital, uh, The Hidden Value of Design and Infrastructure, where she argues that uh, really the well-designed infrastructure brings 
social value that far exceeds its initial construction expenditure. So don't miss this conversation and please join us in just a few minutes uh, when we return with Annalisa Maybu. Thank you. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm here with my guest, Annalisa Mayboom, and we're going to turn the conversation to her most recent book, which she co-authored with uh, her colleague, Sherry McKay, entitled Design Capital, The Hidden Value of Design and Infrastructure. Annalisa, in the book, you state that well-designed infrastructure brings social value that far exceeds its initial construction expenditure. Can you say something about this? What do you mean by this? Or how how can it do this? Well, I think, you know, intuitively, we all understand the value of having, you know, an amazing public space, you know, thinking of a beautiful space, a comfortable space, and a functional space that invites, you know, people to hang out, people to visit, people to enjoy each other and to enjoy the place uh, and brings out the culture and the social aspects of the place. Like we, we, we kind of understand that, um, but we never actually think about what the economic value of that is to the city. I mean, cities have to compete now on a global basis for employed, for employers, for headquarters, for people who, you know, em- employees, for people to come to the city. It's really, you know, important that a, for a city to be um, to be vital, it needs to have a lot of people, you know, coming to it. And in order to do that, you have to, you have, to have something that these people want to come to. And so this is where um, the value of this well-designed infrastructure really comes in. Um, and designers hate, they hate to put economic value on, on design and th- because they think it cheapens it in a way. But I think we might as well talk about it because if we don't talk about it, then we can't argue for it. And that's why we we kind of gave it this name, Design Capital, because it's really like, let's talk about the value. Let's talk about it in economic terms. Let's be explicit about it so that designers have an ability to argue um, for good design. So when you, because your book um, speaks about uh, case studies, right? So when you try to identify the economic value, did you actually use the case studies to be able to determine uh, what kind of economic value they were able to generate over time? Uh, maybe you could speak a little bit more about that because I, I agree with you. I think oftentimes designers shy away from you know, linking design to economic value. But I, I personally believe we have to do a better job of this if we are going to play a more important role in society. So so what tools can designers 
used to argue for the value of design and infrastructure? Well, you know, I think people haven't really done it yet. And this is and this is why we don't necessarily see actual values being assigned to these things. And the only place that they really do it is what we call tours districts, which is, you know, something where people are investing because they specifically want to draw tourists. And that's where the government says, okay, you know, it's it's worth putting money in here. But other than that, we really don't have, uh, you know, studies so much. Um, but we can see from historic examples, which is why we use the historic examples of how the cities have, you know, have become um, better off or they become attractive to people who live there, to people globally, to, you know, we can see how cities have become successful because of their amazing infrastructure. And and so we can look at it in those historic terms. And that's that's what we've kind of used in the book because there are very few examples of, of kind of economic analysis. Um, you can see which cities are, you know, are obviously doing well from a business perspective, but you can't really break that down and say, oh, this is due to this investment in this particular infrastructure. Although it's not impossible to do, you could do that if you wanted to. Um, there are definitely methodologies for doing that, which I talk about in the book. Um, but so far, it really hasn't been done. So tell tell us about um, some of your favorite historical examples. Yeah, so I, you know, I think because I'm, you know, I'm talking to you, to uh, Voice America, that it might make sense to start with the United States. And I think the, the one of the key examples is the Golden Gate Bridge. And we talk about that in, in the book as well. And um, this was um, designed by Irving Morrow, um, the architect and artist Maynard Dixon. And this bridge, you know, the challenge was that it was going to be very, very large and the scale was very important um, of the bridge. And it was also people were very concerned about how it was going to look in that in that area. It was going to be a big uh, impact on the city. At the time, there was a kind of an art deco sensibility that was going on, a style that had developed in the in the mid 20s. And it's an alternative to kind of the European modern modernism. And so that's what you see in in this bridge. And it's it's got um you know, the towers have re repetitive geometric detailing, the emphasis on verticality and the dramatic lighting. So these aspects of the towers give give it more um, spaciousness, but also they use this idea of as you as you go further up that it that the towers get narrower, so it's more dramatic and it looks taller. So this the proportion was studied very carefully, and then the um, you know, the color, which is actually international orange, was very carefully considered. All of these things were were brought to bear on on this bridge design. So we use we use that as an example, and you can obviously everyone knows how important a bridge this is in terms of representing the city, in terms of a place where people go, um, and so culturally, it's become extremely extremely important. We also um, look at something like the Pont Neuf Bridge in Paris, which is a more historic bridge, um, um, and it was commissioned by Henry the Fourth on the River Seine, and this was built to um, really to win the affections of his new rebellious subjects. So it was a you know, kind of something that was giving giving back to the people. It was also to advance his mercantile policies and to become a symbol. It was, it was designed specifically to become a symbol of the capitalist state. Um, and so these, these kind of examples, um, you know, they really are things that you cannot imagine these cities without now. And you, you can, if you built the cheapest, most economical things in those places, like what would we have lost? You know, as civilizations, and so those are those are really some of the the historic examples. We also talk about um, fountains, which are really interesting because they're small infrastructures, um, and they um, they are deemed as a they were kind of they're deemed as a public good. They're so, they're sources of clean water um, in emergencies, and so this and now we don't obviously need them for running water, but in the past, you know, people didn't have running water, so it was really a philanthropic thing to give back to the citizens to give them running water. Um, and they could also be designed as as fully functional things that, that they didn't have to be decorative, but it really adds to the, you know, to the public realm, these these fountains. And now, you know, people, you know, go around cities to see these amazing fountains that were put in. So that's another thing we talk about. Yeah, I mean, I think in all of the examples that you mentioned, you're talking about the importance of aesthetics. Um, as much as um, engineering and efficiency. Uh, and sometimes it's difficult to make an argument for aesthetics, but in all of these cases, I think you you attest to their importance, not only in their ability to perform their given task, which is in, in the case of the bridge to connect two sides of the land, 
but to go far beyond and become part of like the awareness and the identity of the cities. And it, it's interesting because you're looking at it from a Canadian perspective and I'm sitting here in the US. And I, I think that prior to the Second World War, I think we better we did a better job of, let's say, designing our infrastructure to consider like aesthetics as much as efficiencies. I think maybe with the advent of, you know, uh, transportation policies, the highway acts of the 1950s and 60s that wanted to decentralize cities. Oftentimes we know what that did, you know, carve through uh, probably the the poorest neighborhoods in the city, certainly a lot of Black communities, you know, were bifurcated from the rest of the city through the use of the highway. And what you see there really is aesthetics has, is denied, basically. It's just about getting to where you need to go as fast as you possibly can, um, because we were working on the in the outskirts and then we were commuting to the to the centers. But now when we re we're rethinking the way we work, um, there's been a movement towards um, denser cities uh, in general. And so I think maybe we're at a more um, kind of a, a better place right now to consider these, uh, these thoughts, you know, and to reconsider the importance of aesthetics in creating new infrastructures for our cities. So. Yeah, I think I think we used to celebrate, you know, infrastructure as an achievement that we had as a society. It's like, wow, you know, look, we've met, we've made this amazing subway system. It's, you know, it, it's 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 really a celebration of, of of how advanced our society is, and so it was really a, about. You know, it was really, you know, something that was really proud of. And it, now we kind of think, oh, we don't, we don't want to spend an extra, you know, dollar of tax money on this. But, but the problem is, is that that, you know, that really does a disservice to the city. It doesn't, you know, give the city anything to basically sell itself on. And it doesn't leave anything for future generations. And I think for the small amount of money that it takes to really consider the design, you know, in in all aspects, then then we really owe it to future generations to leave them something that says something about our culture and a society other than we're the cheapest thing ever. So well, actually, I think what you're pointing out to is if you look at overall budgets for uh, design and construction of be it architecture or or infrastructure, if you look at the proportion that goes into the design side of it, it's infinitesimally small to the portion that goes into the loss during construction, you know, how inefficient our construction processes are. So I think what you're talking about, I think economic analysis is being done in the world of construction management these days, you know, sort of really looking at the waste of our construction industries. And so proportionally, the amount that is spent on design is is actually rather small but you're talking about you know the huge benefits it can have uh, and so when we're analyzing this and these economic models which i think you're arguing that we need to do more of i think we need to look at it holistically from front to back and understand that the value that design adds is infinitesimally larger than the fees that the design world commands especially in much larger projects infrastructural projects it's really the construction side that oftentimes, yeah. um, if not done well, can be a great loss. Um, so, you know, and I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just wanted to say because the there's actually the the methods. There are methods that you know you can use to to value how you know how much money you should spend on the on what the design aspect or something that. Um, and these methods are actually used by economists nowadays. Um, but they're used for valuing what they call extrinsic factors or things that we wouldn't necessarily, um, you know, think about putting a price on. For example, like a, a public park, a national park or a view or clean air or clean water. Um, there's ways that e economists have of valuing these things. And there's the two main methods are what they call um, um, hedonic methods and contingent valuation. And, you know, as designers, we never hear about these things, but they're ways of giving a value to something that doesn't that is a public good um, and that that doesn't have an economic value in itself. So we have to think about how do we value this this public good in a way that actually gives it an economic value. And so those methodologies can be used to actually do that. Um, and so I think that's what needs to be incorporated, Carrie, is we need to think, OK, Here's the here's what we're going to do in terms of you know something above and beyond the most economical version of what we're going to do. How much is this going to cost? Then we look at how much value that's going to accrue to the city 
over the next time frame, like such and such a time frame. But when you look at what you're going to do, it's actually going to sit there for several hundred years potentially. So you're looking, you don't even have to analyze those 200 years because when you look at the, you know, the next 10 years or 20 years, you're going to see that that value is, is brought back. Um, and so that's why it's such a powerful tool. So you're arguing that we could adopt in the design world some of these economic models, uh, valuation models, uh, uh, to be able to, again, just argue for the value of design. Is that correct? Yeah. And I think mainly it's not the design community that really should be doing this. It's the governments or the agencies that are having the infrastructure built. And there's large consulting groups out there that that value that can do this valuation. So it has to happen before the project starts so that they know how much money that they actually have to 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 spend on the design of this of this structure and and how much above and beyond the most economical that they have to spend uh, so that they can enrich the, you know the kind of the public realm. Um so I think that 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 really has to happen before the job is given to the designers. Yeah, assuming that those groups actually do value design right? <laughs> because depending upon what they consider to be important, they may or may not, um, you know, value the aspects that you're discussing now, right? Well, the, um, the, the, the issue is here that if they if they don't take that into account when they do their economic analysis, then they're doing their economic analysis wrong. Because you have to think about, okay, if we spend so much money on design, then how much is that going to bring back to the city? And if we don't, then how much are we losing? And when you do that analysis, you're going to see that it brings back more value than you're actually spending. So it's a better value for the for the um, citizen if you add add quality to your design, um, and and so that's what I that's what I think will happen. You know, you you spoke about the historic examples. Um, you also mentioned others in the book, like the Fontana di Trevi and others. But you also point, you know to a number of contemporary infrastructural projects that you believe have proven to be culturally or socially relevant. Um, can you share a few of these examples with our listeners? For sure. I mean, look at, I mean we looked at different scales of infrastructures. Um, and I think it, when you look at the city scale, um, in the modern ones that we're talking about, we, we look at um, the kind of the bike paths in Copenhagen. Um, and, and the kind of the design of the public space in Copenhagen, which is a relatively... Um, you know, they've they've done a. It's relatively recently since basically the sixties or seventies, which you know, which seems like a long time frame. But in, in terms of infrastructure, it's really not. Um, and so these these really, you know, Copenhagen is known for its for it's known for that, and people visit the city for the bikeability and the walkability and and the way that their uh, infrastructure is set up in that way. And so that's one of the examples that we look at. We also, I also look in, you know, if we look at it, the medium scale, what we call the medium scale example of the Milau Viaduct, which is a, a large viaduct um, in France that goes through a, a beautiful valley. Um, and it was designed um, by Norman Foster and um, the engineer was uh, um, Villageux. And so when we look at that, we say, all right, this, this, there's now, you know, kind of a tourist industry around this structure where people go and take pictures on it and people visit the place because of it. Um, and so I think that this is, you know, and, the, and people in the in in the place, you know, have it, you know, you know, think that it actually added value to the place that they are rather than subtracted value by, like, you know, running a huge piece of roadway infrastructure through their valley. Um, so that that's a pretty amazing outcome. And we also see the the Van, Vancouver seawall, the seawall that happens around um, where I live in Vancouver, you know, is 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 definitely an amenity that you know the entire city uses very very often um and it's it you know increases people walk on it it's very good for people's health you know it has a beautiful view it kind of it's known as you know kind of the city is known by this by this piece of infrastructure so those are all more contemporary examples carrie yeah and and at very different scales which i think makes the examples in the book particularly interesting to read um well i don't want to sort of um have the conversation without talking about the more controversial outcomes that are associated with contemporary infrastructure. Um, so Annalisa, what are your thoughts on infrastructure's uh, potential impact on gentrification, globalization, or even consumer tourism? Yeah, this is a, this is a huge issue, Carrie, because anytime you do any kind of improvement in the city in terms of infrastructure and actually succeed in that, then you end up with these these uh, kind of effects, which which are, you know, 
on the one hand, it's it's great that you have an, a, a nice, you know, a great environment in your city and that everyone is interested in coming to it and, and it's doing well. But on the other hand, then does that displace the people that were living there? And that's when we see what gentrification does is, is it kind of it raises all the land values and then the people who were living there can no longer afford to live there. Um, and so if you do do and you know i think this is this has basically become much more of an issue because in the you know in the past 40 years or so the financing for any kind of city improvement has been global it's been global financing that's come in and then landed and then it's been used by the kind of the municipal or the local people to improve their their infrastructure when you have that global capital coming in it expects to get a return Right. And then and so that global capital then lands and then it wants to get its money back out of the place. Um, and often whenever you whenever you're doing this type of, of improvement, you're not thinking about the people who actually live there currently. And and so I think that it's really key in those projects to have, you know, a well planned process for making sure the people who are living there benefit from this um, and and can remain where they are. And it's 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 actually it's policy, it's consultation, it's talking to the people that live there um, and doing it in a, in a really um, clever way. Um, so I think that's that's one of the issues. And the other one is, you know, when you're thinking about tourism, are you going to kind of chase out all the locals because you have a massive amount of tourism? I mean, this is if your project is successful. But one of the really interesting things when I was researching tourism for this for this book was that tourists, people actually want to, you know, what makes a successful tourist place is that you, you know, you are living in the place as if you were a local. And that's what we want out of our tourist experiences. We don't want to come in and be recognized as a tourist and go to tourist places. We want to go to the authentic places of the place that you're visiting and feel like a local. And so strangely enough, if you do the improvements well, it should be good for tourists as well as locals. And, and I think that keeping that in mind, keeping who you're designing for and where the capital is coming from and how it wants to get its return out has to be part of that part of that process. In your research for the book, did you come across any best practices, any examples of projects that seem to have done a better job at this? Yes, there was. We do talk about um, South Rotterdam in in this in in the book, and really how they um, they had a, a kind of a, a massive area that they wanted to improve, and that they wanted to make sure that they did not, you know, have you know displace people from this. It was a kind of a you know, not a wealthy area, and they wanted to improve the area and bring in, you know, young people and, and creative people, but they didn't want to displace the people there. And so they really made a huge effort to um, to proceed in that way. And they have been, I think, relatively successful in, in, in their outcome. And of course, these things take many years to play out, but it seems so far that they've been successful in, in doing that through very, very careful um, consideration of how the project is actually carried out. I see. Yeah, I've actually never visited Rotterdam, um, but it's one of the cities that I would like to visit. Um, I think it's interesting. I, I guess when we talk about cities, you know, I'm as I'm speaking with all of my guests, I'm asking them a relatively straightforward question um, because I do think it's important to have at least examples of what we believe to be great cities. And oftentimes, when we ask, well, what is a favorite your favorite city? It's linked to some of the qualities that make um, many of our um, cities great. So, Annalise, what Annalisa, what is your favorite city, um, and and why? Okay, that's a tough question, Karen. I, I think <laughs> I think it's one of those things that you you know it depends on what you're looking for. I mean, when I think about, I'm going to give you like a few cities examples, and then I'm going to tell you what my favorite city is. So. You know, in, in in the United States, I think, you know, Portland does an amazing job of scale. Like the scale of the road to the buildings, you know, is I, I pretty much, you know, ideal, I would think, in Portland. And so that's a really, that's a really, and their parks are really amazing as well. And when I look at Austin, I'm like, wow, the, Austin's great because the music scene there, you have music all over the streets. You know, it's it's really, um, they, they I find they they do a great job of, of that kind of cultural um culture bringing in that kind of music scene and that culture in that way and of course new york has this amazing dynamism um and and it's its culture is amazing too montreal is i really like because the joie de vivre and the and the fashion right um and then i guess tokyo for its incredible density 
Um, it's just amazing in that regard. And their food is amazing too. And Zurich, of course, is amazing because of the fact that it looks like a tour, it looks like a movie set of Zurich. And it's it's just so amazingly historic. Um, but I have to say that, you know, if I have to give my favorite city, I'd probably say Prague. Um, it's got this amazing, uh, you know, it's it's got the European thing going where you have like the the um the kind of the historic fabric, you have the walkability from the scale, from the the kind of the the neighborhoods and the and the culture, but it is a super cultured um, place. It's kind of what I think of as the kind of the the starving artist city. You know, it's just got that feeling about it that um, you know, it doesn't have it doesn't it's not gentrified. It's just you know kind of doing its thing, trying to make it work. But it's just got so much culture and so much um, history behind it that that's what makes it amazing. Yeah, it's it's the city of one of my favorite architects, Joseph Pleshnik. He has a, an extraordinary bridge in Prague, which I think would definitely qualify to be included in one of your historic case studies. So I think that's an excellent choice. And in hearing you talk about the group of cities that, you know, sort of came to the forefront, you know, I was struck by like Portland, when you talk about the scale of the street to the fabric, I mean, it's in large part because the blocks in Portland, I, I believe are among the smallest in the US, they're roughly 200 by 200. So your experience of walking through Portland's uh, downtown um, are, I think, quite different than in other other cities, in fact. So so really the kind of importance of the physical environment in shaping the way we move through cities is uh, is key. Um, so so there's some of the ones that you mentioned that I I, I need to visit and others that I, I know uh, far better, but, um, but thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so Annalisa, I think we're coming to the end of the episode. I want to thank you for joining me today. I want to advocate um, for our listeners to go out and you know, purchase your books. I think you can get them on Amazon. Anybody who's interested in um, really all scales of design, but specifically in this case, you know, the future of automation and the shaping of urban form, and also the importance of infrastructure in, in the design of infrastructure um, in the future making of our cities, I think would greatly benefit from reading your books. Um, I also want to uh, announce next week's guest on next week's show, I will be speaking with uh, Rodolphe El Khoury, who is the current dean of the University of Miami School of Architecture, where he will be speaking on smart cities and artificial intelligence impact on the future of urban form. So for any of you that might be interested in these topics, please join me next week. Um, listen to On Cities on Spotify, Pandora, Apple iTunes. And if you uh, feel so compelled, please follow us on On Cities podcast on Instagram. Thank you again, Anna, Lisa, for all the work that you do, for your work in the classroom, for your work as a practitioner, and for helping us think uh, more holistically about the design of our cities. Thanks again. Thanks so much for having me, Carrie. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 